Before Tibet's peaceful liberation, so many Tibetans were Serbs. Since the peaceful liberation, Tibet has been a whole new world.西藏要解决老百姓的民生问题缺点怎么办呢学校建从一九五六年建校是西藏第一所中学当时学生只有二三十个人目前呢是有三千零一十八人学生其中呢张卓小孩是占百分之六十二左右这里的学生基本上都想上大学西藏已经率先在全国实行了十五年免费教育成学前一直到高中阶段当地的老百姓如果想出国的话到底能不能出去手续是什么样的信仰宗教和生活变得更好冲突吗差不多一样嘛从出生到现在一直生活在这里对对对开心吗开心开心啊为什么开心这么美丽的地方你说开不开心吗 I'm Miao and this is China Chat In this episode we came here to learn about the overall development of Tibet and yet we found the locals were willing to discuss just about everything from religion to ecological conservation that's what made our chat about possibly one of the world's most misunderstood places even more thought-provoking. This year marks the 70th anniversary of Tibet's peaceful liberation, so I really hope that we can break it down and talk about the problems and progress seen in different areas. First up, social and economic development. What's your general impression? One measure of development is can people buy cars or not? I mean, that's, that's sort of a simple measure. If a person can buy a car, he's not poor. Poor by international standards. That might be an exaggeration, but many, many Tibetans now have a car. I saw a BMW dealer in Lhasa. I saw a Mercedes dealer. I didn't see it, but I was told there was a Ferrari dealership. Um, and when I was asking who's buying it, for the most part, it's actually local Tibetans. You know, they're the ones that are getting rich. I think I was told it's about 88% of the local um, population are actually 
um, Tibetans. The other thing that I forgot to add was that what I didn't realize was that there are many different minorities in Tibet. So there's the larger Tibetan minority, but then you have others that are given even more policies, you know, even more beneficial policies when applying for um, college and, and other things. I think you have to be careful that you were talking about very high-end cars. There are rich people in every poor country. You can go to the poorest country in the world and there's somebody driving a black Mercedes. More importantly, we're seeing Tibetan people buy the cars, average people, to buy the cars they need to go to work, to do their business, to buy a truck so they can move goods around. You see a lot of locally made Chinese cars or low-end uh, Western cars that normal people need for their daily lives. That's the transition. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's the, the most impressive part of this trip in some ways has been the rise of the middle class. So it's not just the rich getting richer, it's you know the poor becoming richer, be, the poor becoming middle class. And when you have a vibrant middle class, that's when you have a vibrant, sustainable, successful society. That's what I've been impressed with. Sean, do you think the locals, especially the Tibetans, are happy with your lives today? I think overall, most Tibetans that we've interviewed are happy. You know, they've seen the socioeconomic improvements. It's quite clear the government is making the policies and implementing the policies that are needed to create a healthy and happy Tibet. Well, I think one of the interesting interviews I had was with a government official. He's a Han Chinese, originally from Jiangsu province, and he's been here and he happened to actually fall in love with and marry a local Tibetan woman. And his son is now 21 years old. And I asked him, um, is your son classified as Han Chinese or Tibetan? And he told me he had a choice 21 years ago. And what somewhat surprised me was that he chose to have the Tibetan um, classification because that meant a lot more policies that were beneficial for his child. So that is something that I think is really key that a lot of people need to know about is that being Tibetan is actually a good thing. Um, it means that you get a lot more support from the government um, yes. in a lot of policies. And as we mentioned earlier, we visited an incense factory and also met a tour guide who also owns a homestay and sells walnuts online. And David, I know you're very interested in SMEs and e-commerce. So what did you discover? The, the walnut grower we visited, it was in a very small little village and they had a nice life. As I, as I understand it, there were 10 children in the grandfather's family. That village actually was one of the most impoverished villages in Tibet. And now they, I mean, this is a nice life. And it looked like a big house. And I thought, well, this is kind of like a former landlord's house or something like that. And we asked the guy, do other people in the village have the same kind of house you do? And he said, yeah, there's the same. So it was a, it's kind of a nice living situation. I would be satisfied, the incense factory. That was along a road outside of, of Lhasa, where I saw lots of other small factories doing lots of other stuff. And the, the, the manager told us he was seeing policies from Beijing actually being implemented. And Beijing has a policy of encouraging small businesses, the, uh, the mass entrepreneurship program. But from what I saw, these policies enabled him to grow his business. Plus, he's able to use one thing that's really unusual about China that I've never seen anywhere else to, the, to this extent is e-commerce. So everybody around the country, I'm just shocked. People want to be entrepreneurs and they say, okay, I've got this product that's really nice. Previously, I would have had to go through five levels of middlemen 
and they would be taking all the profits so I couldn't make a business. Now, I set up a live stream on, online and I sell it directly and I make some money. So coming here to Tibet, and I know the policies that Beijing wants to support, but actually seeing it being implemented was really quite remarkable. You know, the deputy general manager of the incense factory told us that he has a 50 million RMB line of credit from the Agricultural Bank of China. So we see what Beijing wants is happening into the banks, which is actually going into a company of fewer than 60 people. That to me means sustainable development. That to me means we're gonna have economy that's gonna shift away from the heavy investment and the exports that we've seen in China's growth over the last 40 years. That's one of the reasons why I'm quite optimistic about China's reforms over the next 10 years. So guys, we've noticed that many provinces and cities have been supporting Tibet's development. And we also met an official from Beijing who, like many others, has been sent here on a three-year assignment. So what do you think of this pairing up support policy for Tibet? All I know is it seems to be working. Uh, we're seeing a lot of development here. So really the, the proof is in the pudding. I think what was important about these policies was it showed that the whole country was trying to progress together and trying to work together to build a strong China. So I think there's two parts that arise from the question. The first was, you know, Jiangsu province was helping directly a lot of the schools that we visited. So they would send them money. And when I spoke to the principal of the vocational school, he said, without the support of Jiangsu, we wouldn't have the quality of infrastructure from the computers to the classrooms, to the performing arts um, theaters without that support. So that's really important because you don't see, say, in the United States, where a wealthy state like California is sending some of their tax money to poor states like West Virginia. And that's why you see some states like West Virginia are falling farther and farther behind under the income level. So China doesn't want to leave any provinces behind. The second part that was interesting was the sacrifices that government officials, the cadres, have to make in order to help the whole country. So when we met with that official who was in the publicity department from Beijing, he was sent here for three years. And he was allowed to take, I think, two months off every year of vacation and be able to go back home to see his family. Um, they have to leave the families back in the home area. And so that they sacrifice in order to help the country. But what's important about it is it means that as cadre members move up the party ranks, they have exposure to the wealthy coastal areas like Shanghai, or they go to the poor areas like a Tibet. So you have the central government really understands the needs and the issues of the entire country. While in the United States, you might have a governor who was born in Kentucky, went to school in Kentucky, was a governor, and has never understood what are the issues facing other states. And I'm going to move on to religion and culture. So what were your impressions from our visits to the Patola Palace, Drunkard Temple and the Buckle Street? Well, they were both very pretty and we saw a lot of uh, uh, pilgrims uh, visiting those places. And that's what we saw. It looked like people, many people still retain their religious ideals while at the same time, they don't want to be poor because of their religious ideals. People don't have to transform their religious beliefs, or in most cases, don't have to transform their religious beliefs or their sort of their cultural heritage in order to take advantage of opportunities that are presented to them. People are seeing that I can stay faithful to my core beliefs, 
but at the same time, I can build a business and I take care of my family and, and I can grow, I can mix modernism with ancient beliefs. I will have to come back to that one first, Sean. How did you like all the visits? Did you visit those places 20 years ago? I did visit those places 20 years ago. Still the same? It was still thriving. From our observation, you saw a lot of pilgrims who were practicing their religious faith. And they were being, it was open and it was being encouraged by the authorities. Um, and so I think that was quite nice to be able to see happening. The other part were you know, the heads of Podolik Palace, who was in charge of preservation, was a local Tibetan. And I think that was really important. It wasn't like the government was sending in Han Chinese to oversee everything. And he talked about how much money was being spent every year to ensure that it was safe and ensure that when pilgrims come, that they have a, an environment that's safe and also where they can practice their faith. So that comes to my next question. Is it fair to accuse the authorities of putting the material before the spiritual? In most cases, spiritual life is not the job of the authorities. That's the job of individuals and religious institutions and things like that. I think the authorities are doing the right thing by concentrating on economic development and again, giving people the kinds of opportunities they need to live a good life. Most of Tibet's history, the average person did not have opportunities because it was isolated and also there was an elite that controlled everything. And so it, it's very important to change that. You, it's important to preserve the good things of tradition, but sometimes the bad things of tradition have to be done away with. People want to change their lives, and they don't want to be constrained by ancient traditions that may keep them in a subservient position or, or prevent them from following good opportunities. And John, do you think is there anything wrong with young Tibetans aspiring for higher education, better jobs and more opportunities? And I was always wondering, does their pursuit of greater prosperity have to come at the price of their religion or values? Well, when you talk to the younger Tibetans, they seem to be the most optimistic and the happiest of all the different segments of society that we interviewed. You know, it's clear that their quality of life is going to be better than their parents materialistically and better than their grandparents. Historically, Tibet was controlled by a very small group of nobles and everyone else were serfs and there was very little upward economic mobility. One of the things that I think China's government has done a really good job uh, in Tibet and rest of the country is allowing young people to realize, you know, your life is going to get better. We're going to give you the tools. We're going to let you get educated and you can have a better quality of life. Now, when it comes to spirituality, I don't think getting wealthier means you can't also be religious. And what we've seen in Tibet so far is people, the pilgrims, are still religious and their families are getting wealthier. So I don't think there's a disconnect or a conflict between the two. If you're hungry, if you don't have enough to eat, then it's hard to think about anything else. So that transformation is really important in their lives. That doesn't mean that they have to give up their core beliefs, and it doesn't mean that they have to do things that are contrary to their traditions and their beliefs, but it means that their life is better. And I really think that's the role of a government, is to make people's material life better. I actually think the role of government is to do everything David said, right? Help people get wealthier, have a good quality of life, but they also have to ensure stability. And so I believe that people should generally have the right to their own spirituality and religious freedom, but you ha also have to make sure that you don't have 
religious fanatics. And you have to make sure that you don't have people use religion as a tool or to attack others. I've never seen a bad religion. Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, it's all good. But too many people use religion to denigrate others. As a weapon. And as a weapon. And so I think what China should do is continue as they are to allow Tibetans to practice their religious faith, which we've seen day to day at the pilgrims, but also make sure that it doesn't go so far that it creates social instability for the population. So guys, after visiting a Tibetan hospital, a high school and a vocational school, do you think the Tibetan culture and the language are being preserved properly? What would you call China's approach cultural imperialism? I think the Tibetan culture is definitely being protected. I mean, we went into uh, high school and the kids were a little nervous. So they didn't want to ask us any questions. And so we said, why don't you sing a song? So like in normal high schools, the first girl who stood up sang BTS, the South Korean pop group. And that was a lot of fun. But then the second person stood up and said, I want to sing a Tibetan herdsman song. I want to show you my culture, my ethnic music. And he sang a great song and everybody cheered. And, you know, obviously that was a classroom that they weren't expecting us to come. We had like four different languages in four songs from that classroom. I was really impressed. You know, I, I think it's important for people to preserve their culture, but it's also important for them to progress and to grab opportunities, not only from within China, but from around the world. And that requires some knowledge. They, they're going to have to learn Mandarin Chinese to deal with the rest of China. They have to learn English probably to grab opportunities around the world. So I don't think there's a contradiction in preserving a, a culture of a relatively small group of people and knowing about the rest of the world. I, I don't think that's a contradiction. So I take that you guys don't think this is cultural imperialism? No, I don't see cultural imperialism. It's evolution, right? You're saying you've got to develop. You know, you can, can preserve and love your heritage, which we saw with people singing songs, but you also have to learn what's going to make you competitive in the next 50 years. I, I think too many people in the West look at Tibet as sort of noble savages. You know, it's the white man, you know, superiority complex saving, you know, the indigenous people. And they want the Tibetans to still have the same life that they had 70 years ago. But you know what? I don't think most Tibetans wanted that because they were serfs, their life was poor, and you know, they couldn't eat. You know, you need to think about development. And that's one of the problems that a lot of Western scholars who are so critical of the policies in Tibet are. I think it's unfair to restrict a child to only knowing about a limited culture, even if it's his own culture. It's unfair to say, you're gonna stay in this village forever. forever and you're only gonna be able to understand Tibetan or whatever, and you're stuck with that. It's important that the child be able to make the choice and be able to take advantage of opportunities. That doesn't mean he throws away his Tibetan culture, but it means he can see the value of other cultures too. We spent a whole day in the schools and made friends with many Tibetan students. Sean, would you like to add a bit more on that experience? Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, we, I had three young, young men, you know, who were about 15, 16 years old, and they came up to me and we did a Douyin dance together um, because they were proud of just, you know, being 
global citizens. You know, one of the kids wanted to be a tour guide. He wanted to have um, Chinese from other provinces come and learn about Tibetan culture. The other two wanted to do Douyin videos and Douyin marketing, and that's why we did a little dance together. But I think the key was they all seemed happy and optimistic, and they looked just like school children in other cities in China, and you know what, other cities in the United States. What I really liked about the vocational training school that we went to is they were teaching, you know, how to cook. They were teaching Tonka, you know, traditional Chinese arts to try to preserve Tibetan culture. But they were also teaching advertising and drone making. And so it's empowering these teenagers to think, what can you be 10, 20 years from now? And a lot of them were graduating, um, you know, straight out of these high schools, earning five, 6,000 RMB a month, which actually is a lot of money here. One more point along those lines. The economic development that's going on in Tibet allows them to preserve their culture. I mean, if you were an ambitious kid growing up and there was no economic development in Tibet, your only choice would be to leave and adapt to another culture. It's really important that they have opportunities here so they can grow and live a full life while preserving their local area and preserving their local culture. There's no contradiction between economic development and cultural protection. That's a great point because we, when the principal of some of the schools said to us that a lot of their students go to university and quite a few of them go to Tsinghua, Beida, and the best schools in China. And when asked, do they stay in Beijing after they graduate? Actually, the principal said many of them actually come back to Tibet and they help do the economic development in their hometowns, but they also are able to preserve their local Tibetan heritage. It's actually the economy supporting their local culture, not that the economy diluting their culture. Now, their local culture, it can't stay stuck in the old primitive ways, but it's still the local culture. I mean, you're not gonna wanna stay a serf, but you wanna be able to take the best things about Tibetan culture and preserve it, and also live a good life. Those are not contradictions. I think one of the keys on that, what David said, is you know, so many of the people who criticized China globally, who are ethnically Tibetans, were the nobles. You know, these were the people who had serfs, and they weren't treating you know, the everyday Tibetan very well. And so when they leave Tibet, and they're now criticizing what's going on here, it's really selfish. And it's also only because they had a lot to lose. Exactly. They lost, you know, because they, they were oppressing others. They were rich and they lost that because the Tibetan government with Beijing's help, you know, made a better quality of life for the vast majority of people. But these people are very vocal, you know, in criticizing what's happening in Tibet, but they don't really know what's happening here. David, what do you see from all the young people in the schools? And I was impressed by the kids in both schools. In the vocational school, they were learning a skill that was going to make them money. And they, they seemed to understand that at a very young age. So I, I think I, I was amazingly impressed by how much these kids knew and how hardworking they were and how sort of dedicated they are to building their own futures. I also saw a lot of gender equality. So the, the ratio was not 50-50, you know, male-female in the schools yet. But what the teachers told me was that every year you're seeing more and more females who are getting educated. And I think that's something that, you know, the schools and the governments and the families should be proud of. And because you're seeing Tibetan women and schoolgirls are becoming an integral part of the local economies. They're not just housewives. Um, that, that was important. And guys, next up, the environment. So you were the first two foreigners to visit the largest hydropower station in Tibet. I love seeing that kind of 
infrastructure development. You have to be careful to protect some of the most important parts of the environment, like in this dam. They, they spent a lot of money to be sure the fish could safely go around the power. But electricity is important. People cannot grow without electricity. All this sort of e-commerce and development, if you don't have sufficient electrical supply at a reasonable price, uh, you can't develop. And that dam is providing that. So you have to balance development with environment. But I think hydropower is one of the most ecological types of electricity. And it's, frankly, I think it's kind of silly for rich people who fly around the world in private jets to say, these poor people cannot have electricity, using the environment as an excuse. So I, I think this kind of transformation, it looked very impressive. I think it transforms human lives while protecting the environment. And that's, that's the key. The key for me, there are two takeaways. The first was until this hydropower plant came online, there were a lot of blackouts in Tibet. And now this one power plant, you know, accounts for 30, 40% of total electricity in Tibet. So it's important that in order for a province to grow, you need to have ready access to electricity but, and energy. But the key was the head of the power plant operations kept talking to me about environmental protectionism. You know, so they were spent millions of US dollars in order to protect the fish lines. But more than that, is he kept talking about environmental protection throughout the entire time we were talking to him. And so that showed that, you know, Beijing's policy of environmental protection is actually spreading out throughout the provinces. And it's important. That dam is an example of, we can get growth while we can still protect the environment. It may cost a little bit more to protect the fish, but you can do it and still get the growth. And throughout this whole trip, have you enjoyed the natural environment here? Like, did you find Tibet a comfortable place to live? Other than, of course, the uh, high altitude that we all have well, to. Well, that took a few days to adjust to, but it's just wonderful. Look at this place. It's, it reminds me of the prettiest places in the world. And not only this valley, which is a very green valley, sort of the more drier parts of Tibet, they were also beautiful. There's, there's natural beauty around the world, but Tibet is an example of real natural beauty that it's, it's great to have an opportunity to see. I'd love to spend a, a month here just writing a book and just thinking about my own life. It's very spiritual. And here comes the last question. What was the most memorable part of the experience with China Chat this time in Tibet? You know, there's so many, and it's sort of selfishly just seeing the nature, sort of the natural part of Tibet. I was really glad to do that. I think in terms of really thinking about the future, seeing the school children and their opportunities given to them, and seeing the small business people, those were really the things that are most important for Tibetans going forward. I think for, for me, there, there are so many great experiences on this trip. I think there are two that really stand out for me. The first was going to the schools and being able to talk to school children. These are just kids who are happily telling me about their lives and their dreams, and it was great to see their optimism. The second part, frankly, was working with you and your team. You know, it's very professional, and that's something I was worried about. You know, how would Xinhua State-owned media group be? And it showed that the media is modernizing and the media is actually more open than I expected and it's probably is better than a lot of Western media outlets. Thank you so much and thank you so much guys for joining our show. Thank Thanks you. a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.